Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the First Take podcast. Uh, my name's Simon King, I'm an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. Uh, I have my colleague Michael Flanagan uh, on the line from Chicago. Michael, how are you doing? Doing well, Simon, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. I hope you're staying safe. Um, as normal, uh, on the first take, we're going to look back at the key pharma news um, over the past week, which um, for this edition is pretty uh, COVID-19 vaccine heavy. Um, Michael, we've had a couple of events that have kind of taken place uh, over the last three or four days, which I think, you know, are really worth talking about. And they can kind of be sort of almost contextualized together, I think. Um, We've obviously had, um, well, it it looks like in, in, you know, on on your side of the water in the US, the J&J vaccine is going to be approved relatively soon. Um, There were some FDA briefing documents that were released earlier in the week, which just sort of affirm um, the FDA has obviously done its own analysis of the clinical data, and it seems to affirm um, what we already know about the vaccine, um, Johnson & Johnson had previously released some some data in press release form earlier in the year. And there's going to be an advisory um, panel uh, meeting uh, which takes place um, on Friday this week to discuss it. But typically, you know, the, the documents are positive. Um, typically, we, we've sort of seen the approvals come almost days later, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, you know, governments are under under the gun, obviously. So they're they're keen to you know be seen as they are you know making things available as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that if the meeting itself on Friday goes as you know, positively as the briefing documents mm-hmm. seem to suggest they will, yeah, I think it, it sounds like everything's uh, going to happen quickly and, and the, uh, this single-dose vaccine from J&J is going to be approved within days, probably next week. Um, and, yeah, if you take a step back, <clears throat> there's there's a lot of things, a lot of updates coming through with, you know, not just J&J, but Pfizer and, and BioNTech, uh, Moderna. And it, if you just sort of take a, a bird's level view of it all. It seems like everything is moving in the right direction and all the data points are positive at the moment. So I think that's sort of the the good news. Um, and then you can drill down on each of these various, um, you know, updates. So specifically for J&J, it sounds like, you know, it's another effective vaccine that's going to work and there's no safety um, concerns that they've seen so far. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all, it's good news at the moment. Um, and then there's, you know, I don't know, you want to, you want to jump in with, with the, the real world data that we're starting to see here? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to, to go back to the original point, you know, other news that's happened this week is we've seen some data come out of Israel for the Pfizer vaccine, um, being used either, well, as, as as in the clinical study, essentially, being used with two doses um, and uh, appearing to show um, very similar efficacy as it did in the clinical study. Um, it was shown to prevent symptomatic COVID-19 by about 94%, seven days after the second dose. Um, there was also some data out of Israel using, you know, one dose, which showed that, um, you know, smaller um, prevention, I think 66 percent of symptomatic COVID-19 
prevented after one dose, but still, you know, still using just one dose, sort of 80% of severe disease um, was prevented. Um, we've had some data out of the UK, which is sort of looking at hospitalization rates being sort of reduced by between sort of 85 and 95% by either the, the, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is one that we're using um, a lot of in the UK. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the real world data is impressing. Um, but there is, you know, I, I think one of the things that's worth talking about is, uh, you know, and I think this applies to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well. Um, you know, that's shown overall efficacy of, of 66%, um, but protection of up to 85% against severe disease, you know, 28 days after someone's been injected. So there's all these, I think you were kind of alluding to it earlier, Michael, there's all these comparisons to be made. And obviously, you know, the, the initial vaccine data for the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, you know, hugely impressive, but it, it it's really kind of maybe at this point in time, what endpoint are we looking at? You know, what's the important thing? Is it reducing, um, you know, cases by 95% or is it sort of being able to prevent um you know, people ending up with severe COVID and, and and obviously ending up in hospital and being, you know, at risk of dying. Um, so I, I think that is something that, you know, it, it's going to be a debate that kind of continues for some time. Um, obviously, you know, you mentioned the J&J vaccine is a single dose as well. Um, I mean, I, I from what I'm reading, and I don't know if you can kind of add anything from your perspective of, of, of being on the ground in the US, it feels to me like people are, people aren't too concerned about this kind of lower top line efficacy for the J and J vaccine because it feels like it's going to be it's going to do quite a lot of heavy lifting in terms of you know increasing the supply of vaccine that's available in the US at the moment. Yeah, for sure. I think that you know people seem to. I can't speak for everybody. I probably shouldn't speak. shouldn't say that, but like, you know, it seems like at a top level view that people understand that the vaccines, all of them seem to really significantly reduce the really, really bad potential outcomes of the coronavirus uh, and COVID-19. So, you know, whether one is a slightly less effective in terms of block, you know, uh, reducing infections and transmissions, um, you know, I, I think we're not at the point where the conversation has gotten to that yet. I'm sure it will at some point, you know, like will, will Pfizer and BioNTech um, on one side, actually Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna on one side, you know, will they start to sort of uh, point out that, you know, their vaccines are better on all these other measures, including just transmission and, and that sort of stuff. That's that's a conversation that I don't know if we've reached that point yet in the U.S. I think we're still in the like race to get everybody vaccinated um, or everybody we can. Um, and at a certain point, though, the conversation is going to change to that sort of thing and yep. you know and then also the there's more conversations obviously like will people need to get this every year will they need to get it every few years will one and one vaccine um or, or at least you know one regimen be enough um, those are all questions that you know the conversation will have to turn to those sorts of questions relatively soon i think yeah 
I mean, I think there's, I think there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that that's already happening. I mean, the the, the other, the other bit of news I think, or multiple bits of news, I think it's worth touching on now. Um, I think it was yesterday that um, I think Moderna said that they have got a, uh, a kind of an, an updated version of their vaccine that they are now going to start testing against um, one of the variants. I believe it's 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 the COVID-19 variant that first originated in South Africa. Um, and Pfizer and BioNTech have sort of said similarly today, they are looking to sort of uh, test a, a modified version. And they're also, you know, they're also talking about studying um, you know, the use of a third dose, the same vaccine. Um, I think, um, you know, almost just taking the, the more is better approach. You know, at, at, at the conversation we've been having about um, the effect of these uh, vaccines in terms of infection versus severe disease, you know, overall efficacy against some of these variants does seem to be lower. But in most cases, um, the J and J vaccine is, is a you know is a case in point against um, severe disease caused by the South um, African variant. It's still got a relatively high rate of protection. Um, but to 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 speak to your point, I, I think there is this idea of you know how does this translate from um, you know, what is going to be a huge amount of revenue that's generated by these vaccines during this kind of initial pandemic uh, period. I think Moderna has announced today that their revenues this year are going to be um, about $18 billion based on um, based on orders that they've, they've already made. I mean, I, I think we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think that's, I think, was it Pfizer was saying about fifteen billion dollars, but but people were working out that actually once once orders are full, that could be rise to kind of thirty billion dollars for the year. So, you know this this market for these vaccines this year could potentially be worth in excess of fifty billion dollars um, during the the pandemic period. But I think it's you know we're moving into that that phase now where, as you alluded to. You know how much of this is su sustainable over time? Do the mRNA vaccines kind of rise as a gold standard? Um, there's certainly um, there's certainly an argument that they're going to be the ones which are going to be easier to modify to to combat certain variants. Um, and I think obviously the argument against um, just preventing you know, aiming to prevent severe disease and hospitalisation is obviously that idea that at some point, you know, there's a risk that the virus mutates and it, it gets to a situation where it's it's evading the vaccine altogether. So I, I, I think it's theoretical that, that those players, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech may be able to, um, to offer a solution whereby they say, you know, we can provide a modified vaccine uh, on a on a relatively frequent basis, whether that's every year or every couple of years, whatever is necessary, that then becomes almost the kind of the the, the gold standard. But but obviously, it, it also depends on you know how often people need to be um, vaccinated. You know what happens with these variants. Um, 
you know, over time, what happens over the next, I guess, over the next six to 12 months as, as, as more and more people are, are vaccinated. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it's going to be something that is, is you know, it's going to be really interesting to watch. I, I, I think from my perspective, one of the things that was particularly fascinating this week was to sort of see um, or to hear some some of the management from Pfizer and Moderna kind of, um, you know, almost, I, I think one of the comments from someone at Pfizer was almost that, you know, the, the sort of other vaccines that aren't mRNA based maybe provide kind of mid-tier efficacy. Um, and, and obviously there is a risk there that they're not going to eliminate these mutations. So I think we're probably setting ourselves up for um, the idea that the mRNA vaccines may emerge as a kind of a new gold standard. But uh, certainly, certainly in the near term, certainly speaking from someone who's based in the UK, you know, we're really, um, you know, using the AstraZeneca vaccine to do a lot of the kind of the heavy lifting to sort of stop people from ending up in hospital and then i think it will almost move to, to kind of phase two um and and I, i'm kind of under the impression that that's going to be something that's going to be replicated in the next couple of months with, with the j and j vaccine as well right we'll see you know we'll see whether the astrazeneca vaccine and, and those sorts of more traditional um technologies perhaps they'll be good enough you know you, you yeah. just would not we're just not sure yet um, but you're right, the conversation will change. I, th I think to, just to, to throw something else in there that's going to confuse matters more, that the, one of the big readouts that, that we're all kind of waiting for is the, uh, particularly in the UK, is, the, is the, the US study of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I think is probably, you know, could, could actually come out in, you know, in a, in a matter of weeks. Um, but obviously in the UK, one of the issues or one of the things that has happened subsequently is that we are now based on some sort of uh, some some data that's been collated. We're using that vaccine with a much longer interval between the first and the second dose. Um, the data does seem to suggest that if you extend that interval up to 12 weeks, then you get better efficacy. Um but I know that the study that's being run in the US, which is basically, the, you know, the study that AstraZeneca is running to appease the FDA, it uses the older, shorter interval of about four weeks. So I can imagine a scenario where that data reads out and it's almost going to be like these results are, are already, you know, out of date. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously if they cut, you know, even if the results come back sort of super positive, that would then throw another kind of spanner in the works in as far as that would that would sort of seem to you know uh go against you know the the longer interval so I, I it's certainly not going to become easier i think the more and more data that comes out comparing across these vaccines is just becoming increasingly complex basically basically what you're saying is we we've got plenty to talk about you know for the next few weeks <laughs> and months and years <laughs> with all the different questions that, that still remain out there so i'm sure we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about uh you know these as more updates come through which sounds like literally will be on a, on a weekly if not daily basis um so let's let's move on to uh jack inhibitors another category of of um you know therapeutic that's been in the headlines and probably will re remain in the headlines for some time. So this week, AbbVie reported 
um, so another batch of phase three data for their jack inhibitor what they would call their selective jack inhibitor uh, rinvoke this time it was in ulcerative colitis uh, i know that this is something you guys or that you've done uh, a physician survey on recently to get sort of people's impression of what's going on in light of the safety um, data from Zeljans that recently came out suggesting it's even more problematic than perhaps people were expecting. So uh, perhaps you can fill us in on that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the I, I think, you know, to, to speak to the data for Rinvoc, um, there's no doubt that these, um, you know, there's, there's never been any real doubt that these JAK inhibitors are, you know, efficacious agents. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, the survey that we that we ran um, was specifically, well, we ran two surveys, actually, but but the main one we ran to um, was to rheumatologists um, based in Europe and the US, um, mainly because uh, the, 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 the kind of big news recently um, in relation to, to Zeljans was this new safety data. I believe we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on a, on a previous podcast. Um, but this outcome study, which which the FDA required when Zeljans was was approved about nine years ago, um, has shown that the, that the Pfizer drug is associated with um, higher rates of, of major cardiovascular events and malignancies in comparison to um, using a TNF inhibitor, which is obviously another you know standard of care for, for various you know autoimmune uh, diseases. Um, essentially we you know the the red flag that was raised with these data you know zeljans has been associated with a few safety concerns in the past but largely um largely uh, the association was largely tied to the to the higher 10 milligram dose which is only approved for ulcerative colitis and it's not approved in 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 the rheumatoid arthritis market um the issue with the new data is is that actually these these increased safety risks were seen with both the five and the ten milligram dosage? So it's kind of raised concerns that um, depending on how regulators um, sort of change the labelling, um, you know, it may have a profound impact on sales of Zeljans, which I, th I think were about two point five billion dollars last year. It's still an important drug for Pfizer, but. You know, there's other jack inhibitors such as rinvoc um, such as elolilizolumian uh, and you know there are studies ongoing to expand the use of these agents in different indications you know atopic dermatitis ulceritis um so potentially significant impact um we are waiting for more detailed results we're waiting to see what re what regulators say but what we did in our survey is we tried to sort of delve into the perception of these drugs and how it's built up over the last five to ten years and how that may then um you know we're kind of second guessing in a way but how that may influence behavior going forward and um, obviously we don't know what regulators are going to say you know that it could well be that they add additional language to zeljance's label it could well be that they add language to all of the jack inhibitors um but I think, you know, some of the key findings that sort of came through were the fact that, um, you know, I, I think um, I, I think rheumatologists um, as frequent users of these drugs are kind of already quite aware of, um, you know, the safety issues that are associated with them. Um, 
And it was really interesting to kind of look at the feedback in terms of, you know, kind of overall risk benefit, which, uh, you know, was still very, very favourable. Um, and the sort of the provisional kind of data we've got back in terms of how use may change certainly suggests to me that, um, you know, so I think, I think we're, you know, anyone who's got an interest in this space is probably aware that, you know, RINVOC is, is going to emerge as a real competitor to the other jack inhibitors. As you alluded to, you know, AbbVie has, has described it as being more selective. Um, it's had incredibly sort of rapid uptake since since it was launched in 2019. But, you know, the, the perception from rheumatologists or that my perception from their feedback, is, I, don't, I don't think Zelljant's, um sales are going to kind of fall off a cliff. I think there's going to be a decline in use, um, but I, I think there's already an awareness of, of, of how to, you know, of, of how the, the payoff, you know, kind of occurs between efficacy and safety. Um, Zaljance is used a lot less frequently in Europe because of various factors. But one of the factors being is that when interim safety data came out, 2019, sort of for the higher dose. Um, the sort of safety, the safety kind of um, issues raised in the in the EU were much greater, and so I feel to a certain extent that European physicians have sort of almost they've absorbed um, some of that some of that thought process and the discussion around the safety efficacy trade off already. Um, and one of the things that came out of the study that was really interesting was that. Um, you know, if regulators do add additional language to, to Zeljance's label and potentially jack inhibitors, you know, the, the labeling for other jack inhibitors, as I think most people are expecting as a result of these data, European rheumatologists seem to be seem to be suggesting that they'd be much less influenced by that in terms of their overall use of the class, whereas US rheumatologists who've sort of almost taken a bit more of a hands-off approach to the safety so far, they seem to be inferring that actually our whole, you know, our, our broader use of JAK inhibitors as a whole um, could actually be impacted negatively, even if it's just Zelljans which gets, you know, additional safety warnings. So I thought that was kind of quite interesting. I, you know, I describe it as a sort of provisional finding. Um, once we get you know the confirmation from the regulators as to how how the labeling is going to change if it changes you know what action is going to be taken it's definitely you know it's definitely something i'd be looking to sort of survey physicians you know across across the different types of physicians that use these drugs be interested to sort of see what the reaction's going to be but even delving into the kind of the perception of the drugs um you know as they know them now i i think kind of goes to show that there's maybe there's there's a lot of experience with these agents now. You know, Zeljans has been on the market for the best part of a decade. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. But the, the the idea that US physicians are maybe more likely to to react by reducing their overall use of the class, I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it basically sort of uh, reaffirms how much of the onus at this point is on AbbVie to try and differentiate itself from Pfizer. So basically what you're saying, if, you know, physicians in, in Europe have already sort of digested the safe, safety info, 
Um, and this, whatever happens with FDA may not have that much impact on them. And it might have an impact here, well, it will have an impact here in the US, but whether that impact is gonna be felt by specifically Zeldans or whether, you know, Rinvalk is really gonna be sort of looped in. Obviously that depends on what, what FDA does, um, number yeah. one, but also, uh, you know, it'll be up to AbbVie to provide as much evidence as they can to support Rinvalk's selectivity profile um, being different because, uh, you know, based on the data they have so far, there, there is a suggestion that, that it may be different. So, um, and I think the only other thing I'd point out is maybe maybe this gives uh, Eli Lilly a chance to get back in the game. You know, nobody, when you talk about jack inhibitors, the conversation was always about Zeljans, obviously number one, because they had a rather large head start. But then, you know, Eli Lilly and Barisit, or Olumian, as it's known, um, on the market, but baricitinib has sort of got become like a forgotten drug, especially here in the U.S. Um, but, you know, perhaps this um, just general perception of and the problems and whatever, just maybe um, controversy or crisis being a, a ladder <laughs> for, for Illumiant, maybe they can climb back into the conversation. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think... Get I think more I think one issue they've got is that you know that they've only got approval in the US for the lower dose. And so if you speak to sort of key opinion leaders it's very much you know the perception among US physicians I think is that Illumiant's you know at the lower dose at least is um you know it is is not nearly as effective as, as Zeljans and Rinvoc. But yeah, I think the other thing that's worth thinking about how the future you know, the future for the jack inhibitors could evolve is, you know, if you look for, you know, if you look to the past for lessons, um, you know, Illumian is, it's the, you know, it's the go-to jack inhibitor for most rheumatologists in Europe, where admittedly, you know, the higher dose has been approved. Um, and, it, and it, you know, but what what's also really interesting from a historical perspective is that, um, you know, there was a marked difference in the reaction to to the interim safety data from this large outcome study, which I think came out in 2019, um, where, you know, the EMA, uh, you know, issued this, this safety, I think it's a, I think they call it a safety letter. Um, and if you speak to, if you you know, and, and, it, and it, it's had an effect at dampening use of Zeljans among you know European rheumatologists. But if you speak to key opinion leaders, you know they are they're kind of flabbergasted that it's literally had no effect on the use of the drug um, in the US. And I don't mean that from the perspective of they think it should have had an effect, but th th they're very keen to point out that you know there's a real discrepancy there between. Uh, the way that the two physician communities have reacted and actually the fact that, um, you know, what the EMA was saying, interestingly enough, doesn't seem to really have any influence among um, the, you know, on the behavior of, of, of American physicians in, in this case, at least. So I think that's quite an interesting, you know, that's quite an interesting takeaway anyway. But again, you know, we, I think we'll just have to see, we'll have to see what, what happens with the data um, and obviously the action of, of the FDA and the EMA and, um, you know, it, it's one it's one to watch. But, you know, a lot of companies have got a lot riding on it. Um, one of the really interesting things this year, I think, is going to be um, 
you know, you, we're going to see some JAK inhibitors approved potentially for atopic dermatitis. Um, and I think it's really interesting when you speak to dermatologists or when we've surveyed dermatologists, you know, uh, they're not they're not thinking about using these oral drugs um, just in patients who have already been treated with Depixent or maybe aren't, you know, and, and then have seen their, their condition progress. They're thinking of using it as an alternative or in some cases, you know, up front as well. So um, I, I've seen some analysts kind of say that the, inhib the, the opportunity for JAK inhibitors in atopic dermatitis is, is purely in, you know, Depixent refractory patients. And, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case, but obviously, you know, a big factor in determining that is going to be this safety data potentially. So it's it's now, but it's definitely become, in my opinion, one of the the kind of key events to watch. You know, this year, I guess it's going to happen in the next, you know, next couple of months. We'll probably see it for sure, for sure. Um, what's next? So IL two, right? We get the, so, yeah. so we a deal announced today. Merck and Co acquiring Pandion Therapeutics for $1.85 billion. Um, yeah, um, interesting deal. Um, I mean, we know that Merck has kind of been doing these sort of fairly kind of premium heavy um, deals for smaller biotechs. Over the last, I'd say probably over the last eighteen months, would you say there's been a sort of a succession of them? Um, I guess there's been quite a lot of focus on the oncology space, but you know this is different in as far as it's sort of targeting, you know, autoimmune conditions. Um, but it definitely feels like uh, Merck is taking that approach of, you know, we're making a lot of money from Keytruda. Obviously, one of the investment arguments with Merck, from, you know, from investors is, you know, the company can't, you know, risk becoming too reliant on Keytruda. But I think, you know, the sort of the, the, the revenue runway, if you will, is long enough that um, obviously the management feels that it can go and seek out, uh, you know, potential bargains i guess you describe them as in the long term by looking at these earlier stage companies rather than spending larger amounts of money on something that might be uh you know a bit a bit more advanced in terms of development. Yeah, yeah i mean obviously with merck the the talk is you know what's next after keytruda and keytruda is you know still filling the coffers uh quite quickly so obviously this is putting some of that money to work. But when I first saw it, I figured, okay, so Merck's buying an IL-2 play. This is going to be, you know, something that they're going to try and add with Keytruda uh, to, you know, go at the likes of, let's see, the other IL-2 companies. Nectar has one. We talked about that last week. Um, although they would argue with it being an IL-2 specific, they're very, you know, they describe it as, as something IL-2 pathway uh, drug, whereas Alchemies uh, has one, Roche has one, um, but this isn't that at all. This is Merck going in sort of a slightly di different direction on the uh, immuno immunology front, which is certainly interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting deal, and obviously, as you said, they've done several or a number of these over the last 18, 24 months, and I'm sure they're probably going <laughs> to, there's probably more coming. Um, yeah. They got yeah. a lot of money coming in and they got a lot of uh, filling of the future, you know, revenue holes to fill. So 
Yeah, I mean, in terms, I think you know, sort of what what you just said is true. You know, on the oncology front, I think a, a lot of people, you know, sort of saw this and probably immediately thought, "Oh, it's oncology." And then I've seen a few people today on sort of social media sort of say, "Oh, it's also immune," but they, but you know, maybe Merck is thinking in the long term that there's a, you know, there's a there's an oncology kind of, uh, you know, focus to be had here. But you know, looking at, at looking at what um what pandion sort of senior management and leadership team have said in the past you know that they've they've been very much focused purely on autoimmune diseases so i'd be kind of surprised if 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 there's any kind of you know long-term aspirations to sort of uh you know potentially spin something out of this uh, i mean just to just to, to go in a little bit more in depth what's quite interesting about it is um uh, Pandion's lead candidate is called PT101. It's an engineered IL-2 mutine that's fused to a protein backbone. And it's what they basically designed it to sort of selectively activate and expand these regulatory T cells. Um, and it's my understanding that, you know, there's meant to be, a, I think there's, a, there's thought to be a deficit of regulatory T cells in various autoimmune conditions. So it's the idea that you can sort of stimulate these T cells to sort of increase, um, you know, and sort of enhance, you know, sort of immune regulatory function. That's the kind of route that they're going down. Um, and just looking sort of into the company and into the into the data today, it looks like the phase one data that they released in January, you know, is, is obviously we're speculating, but it's maybe was maybe that you know the the kind of catalyst for um for Merck to pull the trigger because there are a few other companies in this space so i think Eli Lilly and Nectar are developing a drug for lupus and um, you know an engineered IL2 sort of autoimmune therapy for lupus and ulcerative colitis i think Roche has got a similar product for ulcerative colitis in sort of phase 1 testing i think Amgen is there i think BMS is there um, but it seems like there is some kind of enthusiasm for the um, for the Pandion drug in as in, in, in as far as the data that they showed in January. Sort of, it was shown to sort of sufficiently increase, um, you know, these regulatory T cells that there wasn't really evidence of expanding, um, you know, conventional T cells or natural killer cells, and I think. We're, you know, we're talking about very, very early data here, but obviously, you know, people like to look at areas where there's potential differentiation. And I think that's maybe very, very provisionally, you know, something that, that Pandion is, you know, has kind of showed um, that maybe other companies have not showed quite so conclusively. So very early, but, you know, I would suspect that that data is obviously, you know, something that has caught the caught the eye of Merck. Sure. Well, listen, they they've got the the financial flexibility to to take a bet like that. So, you know, it makes sense that they're the ones doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, Michael. Well, um thanks for catching up with me for this week's um edition. Um let's hope that uh let, let's hope that there's slightly less discussion about COVID-19 vaccines. Um, next week but obviously if there are other updates that kind of catch our eye 
um, we'll make sure that we uh, we try to discuss them in a in a timely and informative manner. But anyway, um, uh, for everyone who's been listening today, thanks very much. Um, stay safe and um, hopefully uh, catch you next week. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.